Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of Rational Security, Until We Run Out of Fuel and Bullets. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. Our title this week is, of course, a reference to a speech that King Abdullah of Jordan made before the U.S. Congress this week, uh, in which he promised to crush ISIS and fight until we run out of fuel and bullets. Jordan's obviously been in the news a lot this week, and we're going to talk about that. I'm joined, as always, by my friends Ben Wittes of the Brookings Institution, a noted Groot collector. Yeah, Groot? I, I'm not sure having one Groot you're the only one I know, counts, so you are a noted, a noted group collector. Well, I, my, my, my uh, former uh, and, and current lawfare contributor and, and sometime co-author Jane Chong saw that I had tweeted from Washington and Lee Law yes. School where we saw the Groot moot courtroom. Uh, Groot. Saw I had tweeted, I am Groot, and so sent me a little baby dancing Groot. And what is a Groot for those of us who, like me, who've never seen this little monster before? Uh, well, it's a thing from uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy. Movie. Oh, that's what that is. And all it says is, I am Groot. Okay, this entire joke was lost on me. I just pretended that I knew what you were talking about. And, you know, I didn't want to seem left out. I see. You're not a comic book fan? No, but I'm a huge Chris Pratt fan. There you go. An episode on Chris Pratt. Yeah. Anytime. Can we have him as a guest? Oh, oh on the podcast and, and later. Um <laughs> <laughs> Well. Well, then. <laughs> Good thing my husband doesn't listen to this podcast. Um, I'm also joined by Tamara Kaufman, but is Groot tolerant Brookingsite. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. You're pretty tolerant of the Groots. You know, he's cute. He's all right. He's no Chris Pratt. Um, all right. So this week uh, on the podcast, scaling back the surveillance state or not, uh, outrage in Jordan and mystery as ISIS continues its campaign of terror, plus later in the show, our object lessons statement. Um, tomorrow, let's start with you. Um, ISIS burned to death this week a Jordanian pilot, Mwaz al-Kasabe, uh, who it had been holding in its custody since he crashed on a bombing run on December 25th. Um, there was already extraordinary outrage and protest over this in Jordan. There were protests that occurred outside the royal palace, which the authorities allowed to continue. Um, this has been an absolutely huge and seismic event in Jordan and seems to be getting more so now. So talk to us about the rhetoric that we're hearing uh, and help us make sense of that. Sure. Well, I actually brought a, a couple of articles that can give us a flavor for the, the rage, the absolute fury um, that we're seeing in reaction to the, the murder of the Jordanian pilot, not only in Jordan, but elsewhere in the Arab world as well. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But I think that um, that rage is partly due to a, a sense that this was treachery because uh, ISIS had been negotiating with the Jordanian government for a prisoner swap, and uh, it appears as though they had actually killed the pilot weeks ago. Some reports suggested he was killed the first week of January, 
And so they were negotiating in bad faith. Um, I think that contributes to the rage, but also, of course, the horrific mode of this uh, murder is, I think, sparking a lot of emotions, uh, burning him alive, and then putting together this highly produced celebratory video, which is, of course, part of the trademark of these jihadi groups. And, you know, for them, um, even if it provokes this kind of outrage at a, at a mass level in the Arab world, in Jordan and beyond, um, it also gets the attention of potential recruits. And one of the reasons why ISIS keeps using these horrific tactics, putting out these videos, is not just to cause fear amongst the victim populations, but to attract new recruits. And unfortunately, I think it's going to have that effect. So that, on, that, on that point, it is working, isn't it? I mean, the rec- they are, you know, they are, rec- we had actually a story about this in the Daily Beast this week, <clears throat> that we are, now we're, granted, we are killing off a number of ISIS fighters, but we seem to be killing them off at the same rate that ISIS is bringing them in. So as a recruitment tool, it seems like videos of this are working. I mean, there were, there were, Photos um, out of Syria last night of people gathering in public squares and watching this horrific video uh, on a big screen TV and laughing and smiling and little kids looking at it and saying, you know, I guess emulating this. I mean, it does work, doesn't it? Or for, for some segment of the population, some maybe narrow segment, but either otherwise, why would they keep doing it? I mean, is that the right way to see this? Well, I think that's definitely part of the picture, and it, it's a reminder of one of the reasons why it's so tough to combat this kind of extremist phenomenon is that the numbers are in their favor in the sense that they are a fringe movement. They don't need, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. They only need a few people. Um, and so even if, you know, out of 250 million Arabs, the vast majority are outraged by this and rejected or they're disgusted or turned off, uh, they only need, you know, a thousand or two thousand people a year to come in, uh, in order to sustain their movement. But the other thing that I think is relevant here is, you know, the kind of response that you hear in the title of our episode, the rhetoric from King Abdullah that he'll pursue ISIS till he runs out of fuel and bullets, Al-Azhar, the seat of Orthodox Islam in Cairo today, that same school that uh, President el-Sisi of Egypt said would be the moderate force countering the extremists, they put out a statement about the killing of the pilot calling for the killing crucifixion and chopping of the limbs of the ISIS terrorists. So there's a sort of equally um, fierce and response and a call for revenge uh, that creates a, a, a cycle, a feedback loop that I think just helps sustain this extremist movement. Why do you guys think we haven't seen that in this country? I mean, there have been... Americans and Brits and now Japanese people brutally beheaded on these videos that have, you know, <clears throat> been seen, if not the, the videos themselves, the images of them by millions of people. So why haven't we seen sort of the, the same level of rhetoric kind of coming out here? I mean, well, it, well, but if you remember the period immediately after 9-11, I mean, think, I think part of the overheated rhetoric comes from the pu- not just public anger, but public fear. Right. This was a Jordanian pilot. You know, every Jordanian family has somebody who served in the armed forces and they're caught up in this fight and they feel themselves vulnerable. The whole country feels vulnerable. Egyptians just suffered a massive um, multi arena terrorist attack in Sinai last week. They're demanding that their government respond really harshly. I, 
I think that Americans demanded the same thing of their government after 9-11. We had really high-flown rhetoric uh, about revenge after 9-11. I, I don't think this is unique to the region. But we didn't have rhetoric about crucifixion and chopping the limbs off. You, you would be hard-pressed to find a politician who called for that kind of, I mean, there's a sort of very specific kind of bloodlust in, in those calls. Now, King Abdullah, what he said, you know, is kind of much closer to a sort of Churchillian, we'll fight them on the land and sea and in the air. But, um, you know, there is something about calling for crucifixion and limb removal that is in a different league. Maybe tactically, but I can't remember now which U.S. general it was who, you know, gave a pep talk to the troops saying, uh, I know we're going to win because our God is greater than their God and we're going to crush them. Uh, you know, we, we certainly talked about, you know, uh, the necessity of pursuing them, killing them, crushing them, uprooting them. It was not... I, yes, we didn't talk about bodily mutilation, but we certainly did talk about violence in a way that I think was very tinged with vengeance. I'm not criticizing. I think this is a natural impulse. What I'm saying is that it creates an escalatory dynamic, and that serves the interest of ISIS. They want the U.S. to be drawn further into this fight. They want Jordan to be drawn further into this fight. The more implicated these governments are, the bigger of a target they are for ISIS, the more ISIS gets out of hitting them. I, go ahead. No, no. Go I, mean, ahead. I think that's that's right. I mean, and I think that <clears throat> I've been reporting on a lot of this this week. And with the death of this pilot, if there was ever any thin fiction that ISIS was willing to negotiate with the Americans or the Jordanians, it's gone. I mean, obviously, and now there now comes word, and this is actually going to be my wordplay, so I'm just going to go ahead and slide it right in here. I mean, the Jordanians, when they came out yesterday and said, according to state media, that he was killed on January 3rd, we initially thought in the office it was a typo and that the news met February 3rd. But to find out that he's been dead for quite some time, U.S. officials told us they think that as of a week ago they knew he was dead. So there's no credible position in which ISIS finds itself now to negotiate. So this isn't really about negotiating for the release of prisoners. It's certainly not about ransoms when they're $200 million, these astronomical sums. It's all about prolonging the agony, the public relations and recruitment boost, and dragging the, the other countries into it and, and making them sort of escalate their own rhetoric, I think. And to that point, it's not talked about very much, but there is one remaining ISIS prisoner, who is an American ISIS prisoner who's known to be held. Uh, she's a 26-year-old woman. ISIS has never, as far as we know, had a woman prisoner. I predict if they put her... In a video, I think people in this country will lose their minds. I think this will become just a total watershed, and I think you will start to see a response that is maybe not looking at the kind we're talking about here that we're seeing out of Jordan, but I think people will be calling for blood in a way that they're not now. There's just something qualitatively different, I think, about a female hostage. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to know what you guys think about that. But we talk a lot about this amongst ourselves at the office, and I just think the image of that, I think, would be so shocking to so many people. I also think there's something qualitatively different about burning people yeah. alive. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, ISIS keeps upping the ante. That's here. right. But that's the point, is that they keep upping the ante, and those fighting them feel pressed to up the ante in response because their publics demand it, and the threat seems greater every so, time. So what's the strategy on ISIS's part here? 
uh, it seems to me what they're doing is they're taking a, a relatively weak coalition and they're strengthening it. Jordan was a kind of modest and reluctant participant whose king is now promising to fight until he's out of bullets and fuel. Um, they kill, you know, every time, I, I, I don't think the Japanese were sort of looking to get involved. And now you have uh, a lot of pressure to get involved. What, what, what is the calculation by which this is good for maintaining a safe haven in which you can act with impunity and grow your territory? Right. Well, so I think this gets at a really important unanswered question, which is, what do we understand to be ISIS's true objectives? Is it holding and expanding territory and running a state? Or is it being, you know, being seen as the heir to Osama bin Laden in their war, their propaganda war, their war of terrorism and extremism with Al Qaeda, that they are the ones who, who bring down the wrath of the big, bad Western powers. And they win when they do that. So if it's more of a sort of, um, ideological or propagandistic objective, then they win, even if the coalition against them gets stronger. But the other point I would make, I think you got to look at the New York Times story about the United Arab Emirates' response to the Jordanian pilots' downing and capture, and the news that they suspended their own flights as part of this anti-ISIS coalition. So you may get tough rhetoric from these governments, but the UAE is already pulling back, and King Abdullah, no matter what his own intent, intent may be, um, has to deal with a Jordanian population that is still quite reluctant about this battle. Shane, you mentioned the demonstrations went, were protests against the government. You got us into this. Yeah. You know, you sent him out there. And I think that, to my mind, <clears throat> the... Is, is horrible as 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 the pilot's death was, and what a, a spectacle that turned into. The more important strategic victory for ISIS that we learned about this week was, I think, the UAE pulling out, and I and I'm almost certain that was leaked by U.S. officials who were aggravated by it. And the fact the UAE and the UAE, you think they're trying to shame the UAE? Sure, and the UAE, you know, flew from the very. The, I remember the night the airstrike started in September, and the press releases that were coming out made sure to note that the UAE had actually carried and dropped no ordnance. Which, I mean, it seemed like in a way sort of covered to say to them to say, well, we're not really into it, but it was almost sort of a, it seemed like a little bit of a dig to point the fact out is that, well, they're just sort of along for the ride. Well, I just want to point out that I think what happened here was that officials heard tomorrow's warm words for the UAE's domestic and international fight against extremism, and they said, well, we'll show her. And so, <laughs> they, right. so they leaked that the UAE the to Cooper. prove me wrong. The, the UAE was yeah. going wobbly. Um, this this podcast is high impact. That's right. We had impact. impact. But it does seem to me that you know this is we were asking the questions yesterday. I mean, is this a fra where are we going to see a fracturing of the coalition? And the Jordanians who I talked to yesterday were saying. You know, it, this will not strengthen our resolve. If anything, it will increase our resolve. Not that our resolve wasn't already strong. It'll go to 120 percent. You know, mm. it was, the rhetoric. They're was just, protesting a bit much. Well, think? I think they might be exactly because I mean, you really think? I mean, that the Jordanians are going to be really on board with the risk of more pilots being shot down, and you know, the UAE pulling out as quickly as it did. I mean, strategically, with its female pilot that it trumpeted worldwide. Right, right. I mean, the, the spectacle that that would create, not the same. I mean, there's always a risk to their armed forces when they go in, and they bargain for that, and they know that. But the, it seems to me that the political blowback of this is so extraordinary because 
of the spectacle nature of this that ISIS has just mastered. I mean, it seems to me that if they killed this pilot weeks ago, they probably spent many of those weeks, A, engaging in the negotiation, uh, B, making it look to the world like they could get a state to actually meet their demands, which they never explicitly said we right. betrayed the pilot, by the way. They right. sort of lured Jordan into that, which was very interesting. Uh, and then take those two weeks to produce this incredibly slick video, which is really among the videos they've produced, and I, I, I watch them because I, I have to report on them, is one of the most highly produced of the ones that I've seen. It is really dramatic, and it's, it's terrifying. Can I ask you, Shane, as a working journalist, do you think that it's right or wrong for news organizations to show these videos or even clips or images from them? I mean, Fox tried to sort of have it halfway. They didn't show it on air, but they put it on their website. So, you know, but it, it seems to me that this not only gives ISIS exactly what it wants in a propagandistic sense, but it also has a really distortive effect on the media coverage when these images are part of the coverage. It's, it's, that's such an interesting question because I found myself yesterday for the first time wincing when I saw clips of it uh, being put on the web, including on our own website at the Daily Beast. We did not show the, the immolation, but we showed the things leading up to it. And I have to say, having watched the full video, the moments leading up to it are in many ways more disturbing and terrifying than the actual event. Um, and up to this point, and I've, I've spoken this, about this before uh, publicly, you know, I, I very much have been, you know, sort of zealous, I think, about putting these things out there. People should see them if they want to be able to see them. I'm not saying that Twitter and YouTube shouldn't take them down if they violate their policies, but that we shouldn't be trying to necessarily silence this, that people should be able to look at it to see the full ramifications of it. And yesterday was the first time that I found myself sort of wincing at that proposition. I don't think I've changed my mind, but it seems to me that it's, it's, you are inevitably, you know, going to face the dilemma of are you feeding this? Are you, are you playing into it by showing it? What was interesting to me in Fox's explanation of why they put the entire video up there was that they wanted people to see the barbarism of ISIS as if we didn't already know it was barbaric. And this goes back to my early point about the American woman. If, if we can sort of feel the level of hostility and outrage rising in the United States, over someone who's not even an American citizen. He's not, he was a Jordanian pilot, you know, fairly far removed from most people's experience of what it's like to support the troops or to be involved in a war. We've seen Americans beheaded and you didn't feel the same kind of need to be, you know, outwardly, demonstrably so enraged by this that you're going to put this thing on a website and say, we're going to show it to everyone. And I think that if it's this next American hostage, is shown. I just feel like we're at a moment where you could just feel things starting to come undone. I mean, mm. people sort of losing it. Do you assume, based on this, that she's still alive, or that she may have been killed a long time ago, and they're mm. going to release that at their own convenience? That I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think that it's you have to presume that. I presume that we just really don't know. I mean, ABC News had a fascinating piece this week from their investigative team where they were asking the question essentially why is it in the videos that show the Americans and the Brits as well who've been beheaded you don't actually see the act itself you see the aftermath which is totally different from all other you know beheading videos out there where they show the act including ISIS's beheading of a number of Syrian pilots and the theory among counterterrorism officials that ABC News interviewed is that um, probably many of these speeches they were, that the prisoners were forced to give to the camera 
um, were conducted after ISIS had done mock executions, uh, had kind of gotten them used to the idea that we're not really going to kill you, just say these things to the camera, they forced them to do it, and then killed them at some other time. We reported in, in the Daily Beast yesterday that officials believe that uh, James Foley and Stephen Sotloff were killed at the same time in the same place, even though ISIS made it look like there was two weeks between their deaths. So they're stage managing these, and there's absolutely no intention on their part to negotiate. I mean, I think it's a safe theory, at the very least, that this prisoner may already be dead. Um, we don't know. I have no information on that at all, I want to emphasize. But now that we know what we know about how they're operating and what their real goals seem to be, it, it, I think it's something we have to consider. So, anyway, so uh, <clears throat> we will try and move on to, to, to happier topics here. But um, let's move on to a, a speech, actually. Ben, this is your wordplay, that um, Bob Litt, the general counsel of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, gave at Brookings this week, actually here on Wednesday, the day we're recording this. Um, essentially, I guess, Bill is giving us an update on the state of U.S. surveillance in a post-Snowden world, in the world after the leaks. Um, what did he say, Ben, and, and what was the, give us a sense of both the significance of Bob Litt making this speech and, you know, what stood out to you that he had to say that, you know, including things we didn't know already, maybe. So, a year ago, uh, almost to the day, but not quite, a couple of weeks off, uh, the president gave a speech at the Justice Department in which he announced uh, a bunch of uh, reforms to uh, U.S. intelligence, signals intelligence practice designed to uh, instill greater public confidence both domestically and internationally that we were in fact, you know, not lawlessly running around the world collecting everything. Um, a lot of those reforms were, have required extensive interagency work to implement and that has been done uh, chiefly uh, coordinated by the DNI's office, and particularly uh, coordinating it has been Bob Litt. So the the, no, the notional idea of the speech is the DNI yesterday released basically a giant implementation report uh, across a number of agencies uh, that have had to change policies and adopt new policies in response to uh, the president's speech and the accompanying presidential directive, which is called PPD 28. Um, and so Litt came to Brookings to describe what the implementation has been. Um, so the problem with this subject is it's really important and everybody cares about it a whole lot. And it's also really, really weedy. Um, and you get down... In, I mean, Lit up actually started by apologizing for getting down in the weeds. Um, so I'm going to try to do this without getting down in the weeds. Uh, and broadly speaking, I think here's what he tried to do. Uh, first of all, he talked about the transparency efforts that the administration has made um, to, you know, release a whole lot of information about signals intelligence policy and law and practice. Um, secondly, he uh, talked about a number of policy changes uh, of varying degrees of significance, frankly, um, that involve imposing new restraints on mostly NSA in 
both collection and use of information. Uh, now, these restraints are uh, both with respect to what they can do with respect to U.S. persons, that is sort of tightening certain protections for U.S. persons, but also, and this is sort of the more interesting philosophically component, uh, for non-U.S. persons, you know, collect, you know, putting new restrictions in place that recognize the privacy of non-U.S. persons, which in traditional intelligence language we would think of as targets, right? That, you know, you protect Americans from U.S. intelligence, but foreigners overseas are kind of why you have an intelligence community. And most uh, countries do not put prohibitions on targeting. Foreigners. We are, I think, the only country in the world now that has a public intelligence doctrine that acknowledges the, the, you know, the privacy interests of foreigners beyond its borders. Um, now, how significant those changes are is a complicated subject, but I think it is philosophically interesting that it is now the sort of formal position of the U.S. that we recognize privacy as a real constraint um, on our overseas intelligence activities. So he laid out some of the reforms and changes that have been made in, with respect to that. Uh, and then finally, um, he talked about, and this will be, I mean, this is back on the subject of U.S. persons, uh, talked about and laid out some, and, and I think this is the first time they've done that, laid out some new restrictions on when material collected overseas under Section 702 can and cannot be used in criminal cases domestically. Um, and uh, again, I think there will be a healthy debate about whether these changes are real and significant or mostly cosmetic and mostly loophole. But I, I, I do think they are an attempt to put the United States optically in a very different place than we were after the Snowden revelations when we sort of looked like the big rampaging out of control rhinoceros. Optically, but also substantively? So I think, look, at, at a philosophical level, there's always been a paradox in U.S. intelligence collection, which is that, legally speaking, ours is the most constrained intelligence community in the world, um, at least among countries with a significant intelligence service. But our capabilities are so vast that the capabilities overwhelm the legal constraints mm -hmm. in the sense that the legal constraints, though significant compared to everybody else's, are, are still quite permissive with respect to a lot of things that a lot of people feel are scary and dangerous. And so this kind of makes that even more so, right? Now, we've adopted a number of new policy constraints, um, but it will not stop us from doing a whole lot of things that a whole lot of people around the world regard as, you know, gross violations of privacy. And so whether you regard that as substantive or loophole probably depends where you sit. Let me take the, I'll, I'll, I'll posit the, you know, it's the, it's the not substantive loophole kind of a variation on this. It's all it? optics. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, I personally think it is largely optics, and I agree with you, by the way, that in legal, theor theoretically, legally speaking, we do have many restrictions that other countries don't, but the capabilities are so vast. So 
Bob talked about <clears throat> um, his desire for transparency, and I think that it's fair to say Bob has probably been one of the people pushing for more disclosures mm -hmm. within the government, sometimes to the consternation of some people in the intelligence community. But, you know, he talked about sort of repeating a line that Mike Hayden had made when we were down at Washington Lee last week that, you know, maybe there should have been more transparency about these programs in the beginning. Uh, and he was asked by a reporter, Warren Strobel, in the, in the audience, you know, can you, I've heard that there were debates inside the government about these programs before Snowden. Can you tell us more about that? And Bob declined. Uh, so, okay, you know, he doesn't want to talk about internal disputes and discussions, but it seems like there was sort of a earnest debate internally about this. But where we find ourselves now is with a program metadata collection of phone records 215 that could expire in June, but plenty of smart people are saying you could just move it under a different authority and basically continue the program as is. Not a lot of dramatic changes to 702 uh, when it comes to uh, uh, for the programmatic aspects of it. I would argue that the prohibition or the, the expunging of the foreign foreigners' data after five years is probably something the intelligence community is fine living with. I mean, after five years, how valuable is the data actually going to be? The metadata was only in the phone program was only held for five years. And, you know, you could also take the view that in some ways maybe 702 has even been expanded. If you think the list of crimes that's now that don't relate to national security for which 702 data can be used is actually a long and significant list. And he enumerated the crimes, and I'll just repeat them here, that 702 data on U.S. persons can be used for crimes involving death, kidnapping, substantial bodily harm, offenses against minors, which I think is probably child pornography and trafficking, attacks on infrastructure, cyber crimes, and transnational crimes. That's a really long list. Right, but, but, so, but before, the potential list was all crimes. Well, so, so, it, so it, that is a, you know, that is a, a set of limitations. What he's saying is, we will not use 702 data in the example he gave was routine drug cases. But have uh, they ever? I mean, has that been established? Okay. And won't they be more likely to use it for these other things now that they've been enumerated? So in, in, in answer to my question, when I asked, will this in fact engender a change of practice, his answer was, I'm not sure we've ever used 702 data in a criminal case. So this gets to my, my broader point, which I don't think it's just optics. I think having... A, having clearly declared policies and doctrines is a really important thing to do, but it may not involve a significant change in practice. Okay, so it sounds to me like you guys aren't necessarily disagreeing that there is more of symbolism than of practice in reality here, which to me begs the question, other than um, esteemed scholars and journalists like yourselves who follow these issues closely, uh, who's the audience? Who is the audience for this? Um, I, I mean, with all respect, I doubt it was just the specialized audience that you two represent. Is it Angela Merkel? Is it the European courts? Um, so I think, first of all, there is, it, it is... European, European audiences in general, uh, who care about this, uh, a great deal, um, and who specifically care about and take issue with the idea that the fundamental protections should be about protecting U.S. persons. That turns out not to be very reassuring if you're German or Brazilian. Um, but, um, I also think the there's a larger audience, which is the broad group of people 
who just kind of atmospherically think that NSA is out of control. And I think what the government has tried to do, and Bob has sort of been the point person on this, is just give a lot of speeches, issue a lot of statements, release a lot of documents, all designed to emphasize, here are the rules, here are the controls, here are the things we will not do, here are the things we reserve the right to do. And you, you do that, A, with the understanding that those lists are not going to comport with the lists that Graham Greenwald would want, um, but that they are going to be reassuring over time to a lot of people that the situation is not out of control mm -hmm. and that the community is not out of control and is not unregulated by law or practice or policy. So it just tamps down an impulse to to do what, from the commun intelligence community's perspective, would be over-regulation by, by being able to make the claim that it's operating according to specified and public rules and procedures. And they've been remarkably successful. I mean, so if two years ago you had said that there was going to be no substantial congressional reform, that even the reforms that the administration asked for and would have compromised on and lived with, the Republicans in Congress would stop, um, that, that the public would largely turn to other issues, and that the pressure uh, from Europe would be abated as a result of terrorist attacks uh, in Paris, I, I think it would have been hard to predict that there would be as little pressure on the intelligence community as there is now, which isn't to say there's none, but I think they've had a, a remarkably better last year than anybody really expected them to have. Do you agree with that, Shane? I think so, and I think that they were a little bit late to the game as a community, you know, well, maybe more specific. I think NSA officials, senior leaders at the NSA, were a little bit late to the game after the Snowden leaks to come out and mount a defense. Um, I think President Obama was also quite late to this. Bob Litt, though, interestingly enough, was not. He was really the first senior official in the intelligence community to come out and defend these programs uh, and I think, if I remember correctly, in his first speech, also making clear that these things were briefed to Congress, and there's debate about the degree to which they were briefed, but essentially coming out and putting his stamp on it as the top lawyer for the intelligence community, and, 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 and kind of implicating Congress in this as well, and saying, what is the problem here exactly? What did you think you were voting on? And these are all legal programs. Um, <clears throat> and since then, I think that, yeah, if you're measuring just their success as the intelligence community broadly by how many of the authorities and capabilities and programs were they able to maintain, hugely successful, because it's practically the same way it was before Edward Snowden. And you know, and you have a president who uh, is outwardly, I think, concerned and expresses all the right sort of notes, but uh, you know, has, has also, though, uh, not gone as far as his own civil libertarians and his base would like him to go. Um, has it sometimes seemed sort of a bit flip uh, in his response to some of the more uh, um, headline-grabbing stories about the breadth of surveillance? I remember in August, after the leaks coming out and saying, um, basically, I've looked at these things and you have to trust me the same way that I would have to 
you know, if my, if my wife didn't believe me that I had washed the dishes, I would have to take her into the kitchen and show her that I'd washed the dishes. Well, don't worry, I've gone into the kitchen and seen the dishes, and they're fine. It was this remarkable press conference that he gave. Yeah, the intelligence community has come out great on the other end of this. Um, foreign relationships, foreign intelligence service relationships, maybe have been damaged. There's definitely been a wedge driven, though, between the tech companies and the intel community. And that's actually, in, in fact, Bob mentioned this today. He said, the disclosures drove a wedge between the intelligence community and the tech companies. Many people, after I tweeted that comment, responded with, no, actually, the actions of the NSA that were exposed is what drove the wedge. That, to me, is probably the, the great overlooked element in all of this. They come out fine, the IC does, with its capabilities intact, but the partners that they need in the industry are much more reluctant to work with them. And, and while there's another, uh, I agree with that, there's another... Uh, political damage. Again, it doesn't implicate their legal authorities, but, you know, there is a great deal more anxiety in Europe than there used to be about working with them. And this uh, has abated to some degree in light of Paris, um, but they, there is a, a, a problem that the CIA has always had, which is you have good relationships with your intelligence and interior ministry counterparts, but there's a political problem with the leadership uh, on the political level. But NSA really has that problem now. You know, they cooperate at an operational level, but they're very disreputable in public. Well, so, and, and this is the problem of sustaining coalitions um, over long periods of time, even when the, the countries who make them up may agree on the threat or even the nature and degree of the threat. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to agree on how to counter the threat. And, you know, that in a way brings us back um, or links up to the issue we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast. Um, because, I, you know, that, that challenge between the U.S. and Europe um, on intelligence and, and cyber, I think, we can see similar challenges with the U.S. and its Arab partners in the anti-ISIS coalition. Okay, let's move on to object lessons. Um, tomorrow, do you want to go first? What did you bring sure. to class for show and tell? <laughs> well, um, I brought you a photo because the object itself, even though it's not very far away in my office here at the Brookings Institution, it is really large. Not uh, the broadsword? No, not the broadsword. Every week, Every week with the broadsword, broad man. We want the broadsword. We do want the broadsword. You fear the broadsword. Okay, the day I bring the broadsword to this podcast, you are both in major trouble. Um, but no, what I brought is this huge poster in my office, uh, which is a poster of a painting. Okay. Um, it's a, a painting by Henri Matisse called The Casbah Gate. Uh, and um, I've, I've had this poster uh, for a long, long time, ever since I saw the painting in real life at a special exhibit at the National Gallery of Art in 1990. Um, and why today uh, am I bringing this poster uh, from the exhibit Matisse in Morocco? Because uh, the events of the last few weeks have really made me think about how much things have changed um, not only in terms of uh, relationships between the West and the Middle East, this is uh, this large canvas is one of a, a number of huge canvases that Matisse painted um, over several years, where he spent summers in Morocco. So that you know, this was in the 1920s and teens and 20s. 
um, when, you know, a French painter could go and, and rent a house in the old city of a North African country and, uh, and live there happily for summers on end. Uh, so, and, and the art that resulted was this wonderful merging of, um, European painting and, you know, the, the color and the light and the, um, culture of North Africa. But the exhibit was also a joint product, uh, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which of course was still around in 1990. These canvases, uh, are, are, uh, property of what's now the Russian government, then the Soviet government. They had been confiscated from their owner, uh, during the course of Soviet history and, uh, and were brought to the United States for the first time in this exhibit in 1990 when I saw them. So it was the sort of immediate post-Cold War collaboration, the, the mounting of this Matisse exhibit that never would have been possible before. And the, the recent, uh, discussion about, you know, new Cold War between U.S. and Russia with the exacerbation of the conflict in Ukraine, uh, and co- continued confrontations over Syria and Iran and things like that just really put me in mind of where we were back then. Um, the things that we did at a, at a, a moment that now seems like it really was just a flash in the pan. Mm-hmm. But it was a moment then that felt like it was a whole new world of possibilities. So um, maybe a bit sentimental, but that's my object. I think we need to recapture that. If only. That moment, that sentiment. Yeah. We could bring the, the paintings back. I wouldn't mind seeing them again yeah, at all. Yeah, mount another exhibit. Okay, uh, I will do my object lesson next. Uh, my object actually is, and I don't have a picture of it, but it's a dash cam. Uh, and I'm not going to show, we'll put this on the website, I'm not going to show a dash cam per se, but... Uh, we'll put up this picture of this extraordinary photo of the Taiwan air crash yesterday, which was captured by a dash cam. Uh, and as somebody who has a phobia of, of aviation crashes, I was immediately fixated by this. But the reason I bring this in is, in all of the talk and all of the things I've written about surveillance, we've talked a lot about this on the show, what is it with the fact that apparently... Every car in every other country except the United States has a dash cam. Yeah, what is it with the dash cam? I do not understand what it is with the dash cam <clears throat> and how... And how can all these countries be so obsessed with privacy and yet they all have dash cams it's, on it's, their cars? It's astonishing to me. And, and, you know, if you can just, just Google dash cam, and you, you, it's an enormous amount of just crazy things that get captured, the most spectacular of which we all find out about, like the meteor crashing... Uh, in Russia. That was amazing. This is not the first plane crash, by the way, that's ever been captured on a dash cam. And there's, you know, there are, there's a public safety aspect to this that's going to be actually be able to help probably investigators find out what happened. It's very dramatic footage. It's quite awful. I and mean, obviously people died. But there's, you know, it, it is, it's this whole idea of, um, people driving around with pictures and uh, cameras in their car recording things and capturing these random moments and thinking, how is it that we don't have that here? Shane Harris, you just heard it, endorsing more cameras, more <laughs> surveillance. No, Bring it on, anything. he says. So, I mean, self-surveillance. No, it's, 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 it's surveillance. It's surveillance. Surveillance sounds like a kind of cooking. Not um, enough sous-vide-valence. Sous-vide-valence. <laughs> I am not, but for the record, I, Ben, I am not endorsing more dash cams. I just think it's, 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 it just seems so odd to me that this is a thing in so many other countries 
And we don't have it here. So I mean, it, it seems like something we would obviously have It must be a liability thing. That is that our, what it is? That our liability laws with respect to auto accidents are different than other places. And so other places, there's an incentive to record accidents. Maybe that's maybe? just, maybe that has to do with it. I mean, I, I profess ignorance on this to our listeners. So please, if you have an explanation for why we don't have dash cams and we're being deprived of all of these, you know, these videos. Let's please. hear it. Yeah. I, and, and I just want to point out that if ISIS uses a dash cam, we could call it Dash cam. Oh my oh. god. Sorry. I'm gonna edit that out. Um, no, actually, we're not gonna edit that out. Ben's gonna have to live with it. Um, alright, that's my object lesson. So Ben, you have brought in your object. You I have brought have in a physical it. object. Tell I have brought it. in a chess clock. Uh, and the reason I have brought in a chess clock is because right after we're done taping this, the estimable Jonathan Rausch and the estimable Bell Sawhill, both of Brookings, are going to come here into my office and we're going to record the first of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions' new show, which is going to be called The Chess Clock Debates. Right? Uh, it's cross-marketing. It is cross-marketing. We're, we're, you're, and by the way, if you're a potential sponsor of Rational Security, understand the, the quality of the cross-marketing that's going on here. The synergies in this company Indeed. are amazing. Martha Stewart, um, watch out. So uh, a number of years ago, my friend Emily Messner uh, had, I think, a truly brilliant idea for revolutionizing presidential debates. And her point was, uh, what suck about presidential debates is the moderators. And, you know, you go there to, you go to a presidential debate or you turn it on to listen to the candidates. And between everything that a candidate says and the response is, Jim Lehrer or Candy Crowley, and you just lose no, the will to I'm live. I'm sorry, Candy Crowley rocked as a moderator. I want her at every debate. Emily's point is that moderators as a species suck, and if you could just get rid of them, the whole thing would be better, more interesting, more focused, and fairer. And she proposed replacing Jim Lehrer with one of these, a chess clock, which gives equal time to both sides. As Jim Lehrer does. As Jim Lehrer does. But it doesn't talk, um, and it lets the candidates propose questions to each other. They can talk for as long as they want, but then they tap out, and they're not allowed to interrupt the other side. So I don't know if this would work for an actual presidential debate, but I thought for debates on interesting subjects by really interesting people who would observe the rules, it would be fabulous. So this is Spaghetti on the Wall Productions' new show. It's going to be called The Chess Clock Debates, and we're taping the first episode of it uh, momentarily. Wait, Ben, what's the first chess clock debate about? Can marriage be saved? Oh, and not just anyone's marriage, but marriage. Marriage as an institution. Okay. Well, that's going to be very... Now, I, I can guess what John's going to say, but I don't know what his, uh, his debate partner is going to say about that. Uh, well, Bell has, is a longtime marriage scholar and has become skeptical that the institution is savable. Jonathan, of course, is one of the early promoters of the idea of same-sex marriage, and he is an enthusiast of the vitality of the institution. He's also a newlywed. He'll get over it. <laughs> you uh, old married man, you. That's right. So cynical. Yeah, you know, in my old age. Um, <clears throat> so listen for that. Uh, there will be more coming on that shortly in the Chesscock debates. We're very excited about this and, uh, and grateful to John and Bell for agreeing to take us out uh, for the first episode. So that brings us to the end of the show. Um, please... 
Find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Instacast, wherever you download podcasts. And please, please, please leave a rating. It's the best way to tell others about the podcast and what you like and what you don't like. Follow us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, you can follow us there. You can also find all of us individually on Twitter, Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes and myself, Shane Harris. Thanks this week, as always, to our editor, Jen Howell. Our music is performed by Chris Pratt. Just kidding. <laughs> you were listening. Our music is, of course, as always, performed by my friend, the lovely Sophia Yan. Thank you to her. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. For Ben and Tamara, we will see you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.